Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. I just wrapped up a class in the Mecca Institute, which um, for those um, who are not familiar with the Mecca Institute, it's basically the main discipleship ministry at Mecklenburg Community Church. And in that class, we covered the conquest of the promised land. And I remember when I originally wrote that class a couple years ago, I remember feeling pretty nervous to do that research because I had just long struggled with the whole concept of, you know, the bloody holy wars mentioned in the Bible, you know, the wiping out of entire nations, including children in the name of God. And I guess, quite frankly, I was a little bit nervous of that I might discover a God through my research who was not as loving or as merciful as I hoped he would be. And based on the response of that class, it was not just me who had that hang up. Um, and to take it one step forward, it, forward um, it, further, it's not just Christians who struggle with that. In fact, while for some atheists or agnostics, you know, it's the institution of the church or the hypocrisy of Christians that is like their big stumbling block to faith. For others, it is the perception of a God who appears more like a moral monster based on some really tough to swallow stories in the Bible. And I've heard you speak on this at Mac, and it, I feel like it's always just been so helpful for those who get the privilege of, privilege of listening to your take. So I was hoping that we could just talk about that today just for the benefit of our listeners. So yeah, for that. I am because it is a huge issue for people. Yeah. Well, I thought we could just kind of start off with where we first see this, and I'll air quote here, like questionable side of God. Because when you're reading the Bible, you know, all of the creation stuff goes down so nicely. You know, you get to the Cain and Abel story, and it's unfortunate, but that's more about Cain's sin than, than anything else. But then you get to the flood. If you actually read the story from the Bible and not just the Sunday school felt version of it for kids, you realize how, gosh, how truly tragic it was for God to have wiped out an entire population save for one man's family. And if you read between the lines, you realize that that also included women and children and all of the land animals that did not make it onto the ark. And so that feels drastic. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And if we are going to be walking kind of case by case through some of the bloodier parts of Scripture or the more concerning parts of Scripture, which I think can be healthy, um, some talking about Noah right off the bat does lay a groundwork for several things that are important. How you feel about the story of the flood depends on how you feel about the idea of justice. And the idea of justice is simple. It's doing what is just. It's doing what is right. In terms of punishment or response, it's giving a reward as well as a penalty, whichever is called for. Uh, um, in response. So, which is why when we talk about something as being justified, we mean that it was something right to do. In the story of the flood, we have God bringing uh, justice to bear on human sin and human evil. God is a just God. He can only do what justice demands, else he would cease to be just. He would cease to be God. Uh, Because God doesn't simply do the just thing. He is just. I mean, it's his very nature. It's intrinsic to him. So he can't be unjust in any way. He can't avoid what justice dictates or he would cease to be God. He can't be what he isn't. And sin and rebellion and wrongdoing and evil, well, it demands justice. 
And I know some might be thinking, well, yeah, but can't God just kind of choose to ignore all of that with a wave of his hand? I mean, isn't he loving and forgiving? And the answer, of course, is yes, he is, but he's also just. So imagine a judge who's got to preside over the trial of his own son for assault and robbery. Uh, It would break his heart that his son committed those crimes, but he can't just declare him innocent and dismiss the charges and remove any kind of sentencing because then he would cease to be just. Uh, He would be no longer a good judge. He would be corrupt. God cannot be corrupt. He cannot be an unjust judge. So what does that mean for us? Well, the Bible makes it clear. In the New Testament book of Romans, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. Uh, It also, we all stand before a just God without defense and with justice due. Uh, And what is the verdict? God tells us that too. A few chapters later in Romans 6, it says, and the wages of sin is death. Uh, so what do we earn? What do we deserve as a result of our sin? And the answer is death. There's physical death and there's spiritual death. Sin brings both. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were eternal creatures, but then through the fall, physical death entered the world through sin. And worse than physical death is spiritual death, which results in eternal separation from God. And as a result, a holy God has no other choice but that death when the choice for sin against him has been made. So the flood came. Noah entered, God shut the door, not only indicating that Noah would be safe inside, but also declaring God's judgment on those who were shut out. The just judge ruled against sin, which is why Thomas Brown, I I recall once said that there was a deluge once, seems not to me so great a miracle as that there is not always one. Which brings us to the other theme of the flood. There was something along with the justice mercy. The truth was that God was grieved that justice had to fall down in the world. He didn't want to end his creation. He wanted to save it. He wanted to be in relationship with people. He created them in order to love them. And as long as there was one person willing to choose him, choose that love, like Noah, God was not going to give up. You see, in spite of Noah's sin, he was a sinner like anyone else, but there was one thing different about Noah. He was sorry he was a sinner. And he wanted to please God, and he wanted to be in a relationship with God and honor God. He wanted to be forgiven for his sins and be a right relationship with him. And that is all that God was looking for. Uh, That's why God not only told Noah he was going to bring a flood to destroy the world, but also offer a covenant to him and his family, a covenant of mercy and a covenant of grace. And in that hope for humanity, because of even a single man's heart for God, God vowed never to flood the world again entering into a covenant with Noah and offering the rainbow as a sign. But even that's not the end of the story. Uh, It was in many ways just the beginning. And this is where we need to keep going after the flood, because see, we, we kept sinning and God kept reaching out to us with mercy and grace in the midst of the justice we kept provoking. The memory of Noah and the flood faded. People decided to go against God again in large collective ways, resulting in the building of the famed Tower of Babel so that they could exalt themselves and remove God's place in their lives. And God mercifully stepped in and stopped them before they completely separated themselves from him by confusing their language, spreading them throughout the earth. But the sin and rejection of God continued. So God then called out Abram and through Abram began the Jewish people's relationship with God. God called them into community, Israel, through which he reestablished his picture of his heart and love to the world. God, again, did not quit on us. But then again, we kept choosing rebellion and rejection of relationship. 
the story of God's effort, you know, uh, how that fared among the descendants of Abraham was a tale of unrelenting disasters. Uh, described at length in the Old Testament, almost takes up the rest of the Old Testament. Despite Abraham and God's covenant, the continued gift of godly leaders and judges and prophets, the nation fell into repeated cycles of rebellion and apostasy and defeats and invasions and divisions and exiles until mercifully God intervened again. And this intervention brought all of human history to a defining moment because that intervention was Jesus, the ultimate act of both justice and mercy through which God offers his final ultimate arc to the world, if you will, for any who would enter before the doors uh, were finally shut. Because in Jesus, you had God himself in human form, second person of the Trinity, come to earth and live the perfect life, lay down that life, die on a cross for the sins of the world. And that death would then be offered as a substitute for any and all who would take it. Our sins deserved death. Jesus took our place. So the cross was where justice met mercy so that God's holiness and love could envelop our lives. I've always appreciated how Frederick Beekner put it. He said, it's like a father saying about his sick child, I would do anything to make you well. God finally calls his own bluff and does it. Thank you. for. I feel like, gosh, that, that explanation in and of itself was so helpful. And yet... We're not, we're just getting started here because just a few chapters later, you get to the story of Abraham. And that feels a little bit different than what you just described because specifically God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. Sure, God, I mean, in all fairness, he stops him before he goes through with it. But many wonder, you know, what do we make of that? Was God just trying to play some kind of sick game, you know, playing with Abraham and testing him? What's your take? Well, without a doubt, it was a test. Hmm. Um, and at first read, a disturbing one and a shocking one. Uh, what kind of God would conjure up that kind of test or put anyone up to that kind of test? Well, there's so much more here than meets the eye, beginning with the nature of the test itself. First, that God would use Isaac to test Abraham makes perfect sense. It, it was the perfect test for Abraham because Isaac was at the heart of Abraham's trust relationship with God. In the culture of that day, a son was absolutely everything. Um, not only did they carry on your name, your family line, but tied up with them was everything you owned and everything you had built. No son to pass it on to, you lose everything. It was as if your life had been lived for nothing. Uh, no legacy, no heritage, no future. Your whole life was just a one and done. Uh, but Ab And Abraham and Sarah had fertility issues on top of that. They couldn't have children. And in the midst of that, God had promised that he would be the father of many nations. Uh, so being infertile, the years going by and God's promise beginning to fade in their ears, they had to have faith and they did. And it paid off in their 90s. <laughs> Less, uh, God gave them a, a single child, a son. And uh, so now you probably get the test. Uh, God was saying, you had faith that I would give you a son. Do you have faith that no matter what happens to that son or I ask of you with that son, that I'll still fulfill my promise to you? Um, is your promise, is, is it in the son or is it in me? Now, you're thinking that while it might be okay for God to test our hearts, this is the life of another human being. But was it really so scandalous? Yes, the pagan ritual of child sacrifice by humans was condemned throughout the Bible by God. And murder is wrong because we do not have the right to take a life. Only God has that right. But see, there's the rub. We're talking about what God is doing here. God. 
when God takes a life or commands its taking, it's not murder because he created that life. He, he owns that life. It's his to do with as he, as he pleases. And here he's exercising that right. I gave you Isaac for a while. I want him back. You know, I mean, it's, it's totally Isaac is, is his. It was his to exercise. Isaac was not Abraham's life. Isaac's life wasn't even Isaac's life. Uh, we all belong to God and created by God and will one day return and stand before God. Isaac's role on the planet was whatever God's role for him, whatever he wanted it to be. Uh, if God wanted him to return to him, uh, that was God's choice. There's absolutely nothing immoral about it. It would be immoral for one of us to make that decision, but not God. That's what it means to be God. Uh, that's not all. If you keep reading the story, and it's uh, found in Genesis 22, which we'll put in the show notes in case you can't remember that, if you want to read it, you find three things. First, Abraham had absolute faith that Isaac would not die. Absolute faith. Even if he went through with the sacrifice, he believed that God would somehow raise him up or it, it would be cared for. Mm -hmm. well, he, when he left his servants, there's an interesting, when you read the story, when he left his servants and took Isaac to the side of the sacrifice, he told them that they both would be coming back. And he already knew what God had brought him there to do mm -hmm. and asked him to do. But he specifically told them, we're both going to be coming back. And to his son, he said, God will provide what is needed for this sacrifice. Not had provided, will. Somehow, some way, Abraham believed, knew that God would see this through, even if it meant the death of his son. Second, so did Isaac. Uh, Isaac asked about the lamb. Abraham said God would provide it for Isaac. That was enough. He was fine with that. There's no indication he fought his father when being bound or that he tried to run away or that he fought for his life. Uh, even as the knife was being raised, Isaac was as trusting as his father. It wasn't just Abraham's test. And then third, God did provide. He did intervene. God never intended for Abraham to sacrifice his son. It was a test, but it showed God everything. Hmm. Well, God may have spared the sacrifice of Isaac, but sacrifices would continue to characterize his people for centuries. Not of people, but of animals. Because with the institution of the sacrificial system, slaughtering animals to atone for sin became a regular aspect of Israelites' relationship with God. So what's up with that? We're, we're getting into a lot of theology and a lot of Bible. Yeah. This is good. This is good because you, you, these are, these are, they're important answers and they're important issues to bring up and it's important to understand. So let me give you another longer answer of sorts. Go back to the story of Isaac. You're right. It still ended with the sacrifice, that of a ram. So why? Well, here's the important territory that we need to get into and it's very deep and getting it is everything. And we need to get it. We need to go back to the event known as the Passover. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with that, there was a time when the Jewish people were enslaved by the Egyptians. And a man by the name of Moses came along and led them with the help of uh, God-delivered plague or two, 10 before it was all over, out of bondage and into freedom. It did take 10 plagues before the uh, from God before the stubborn hearts of the Egyptians would release the Jewish slaves. God didn't want to send the plagues. He didn't enjoy sending the plagues much, you know, but he loves us too much not to do everything he can to get our attention and to turn us around, including the Egyptians. And God was not only showing his love for the Jews, but he was trying to reach out to the Egyptians and soften their hearts. Uh, he loved them every bit as much, but they wouldn't respond. So each plague grew in gravity and force one after the other with sadly no effect. Even nine didn't do it. But on the 10th and decisive plague, that was the most telling of all, and it would result in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. 
uh, actually the firstborn of all in that area. Uh, but like the others, it could have been avoided. Uh, God told the Israelites that if they would sacrifice an unblemished lamb, one without a defect, perfect in every way, and then take that blood and spread it over their door uh, posts, that the angel of death that was being sent to deliver the 10th and final plague would pass over them, hence the term Passover. In ancient times, the Bible teaches that God allowed people to sacrifice an animal to make amends for their sins. Uh, I know that seems strange to us, but it was very intentional by God. He wanted people to see the severity of their sin. He wanted people to see that paying for the sin that comes between us and God is uh, messy. It's gruesome. It's costly. Uh, it's bloody uh, because sin is messy, gruesome, costly, and even bloody. But he also wanted us to see his love, his forgiveness, his mercy. So the sacrifice was a substitute for the sinner. It bore the sinner's guilt. This is where we get our term scapegoat that we still use in our culture today. If you've ever heard of someone making a scapegoat for something, you're blaming something, you're pinning something on them. That term comes directly from the Bible. The Israelites had an annual day of atonement on which the Old Testament um, priests would make atonement for all the sins of the people. And the scapegoat was the goat to which the sins of the Israelites were symbolically transferred to on that day. And then it was driven off into the wilderness to die. There would be a laying on of hands representing a confession of guilt on the part of the people, a transfer of guilt onto the victim. And God also said that the uh, animals sacrificed were to be without any kind of blemish or any kind of mark. The point was that the sin or imperfection could only be addressed by perfection, by God himself, because the sin was ultimately against God and his law, and only he could offer true forgiveness. It wasn't something that they could address themselves. You, you can't deal with sin yourself. So the sacrifice was offered to God, uh, but it wasn't something that would finally and ultimately bridge the gap between us and God. It was like a stopgap measure as God was trying to uh, make his redemptive plan clear and continue to reveal that, which is why throughout that time, the great prophets of God said that there would be one who would come from God, who would take away the sins of the world once and for all. Uh, the one sacrifice for all, a Messiah, that the sacrificial system was moving toward a fulfillment. Back to the Passover. Anyone who wanted to make the sacrifice, uh, fill it with the meaning it was meant to have and make it known would be passed over, both Jew and Egyptian, whoever did that. It was a wide open offer for anyone wanting God's mercy. Unfortunately, the people of Egypt would not release the Jewish people uh, from slavery. They did not turn to the one true God for mercy, even after seeing all that the plagues had unleashed and all that had happened to them prior to that point. So the angel came. The firstborn of Egypt were largely killed. Uh, those who had covered their homes with the blood of the lamb were saved. And it had such an impact on the leaders of Egypt, they finally released the Israelites from slavery. Jews have been celebrating the festival of Passover ever since as a reminder of God's deliverance uh, from death and the freedom that came from that deliverance through the blood of a lamb. That festival developed and eventually involved a lamb that would be slaughtered and eaten, uh, along with unleavened bread, meaning without yeast, that would be eaten so that the bitter taste of that unleavened bread would remind them of the bitterness of the slavery that the blood had released them from. Um, and interestingly, a cup of wine was always set aside as part of the Passover celebration, uh, but never drunk. But that was set aside for the looked for, hoped for, promised Messiah in case he came that very night to bring deliverance. It would be his cup to drink. 
And finally, it was always to be celebrated as a family, as part of a wider faith community, to remind them that they were saved as a community, called out of slavery as a community in order to be a community. So bringing this back to us and sacrifices, to that part of the story, we have to turn to the New Testament. Just before his death, Jesus gathered the disciples together to celebrate the Passover. And it was time to do it. It was the annual Passover celebration. But something happened. This was the night before his death on the cross. And when they gathered in the upper room to have that last supper and Judas would betray him, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and said, this is my body now that is broken for you. And then he took the cup um, and said, and this is now the covenant of, no, this is my blood, the covenant. Um, And you just can imagine just how electric that must have been there in the room. Because when Jesus said, now this wine and this bread, it's got a whole new meaning from this point on. It's to represent me as the unblemished lamb that was sacrificed. Those that are marked by my blood will be freed from the slavery of their sin. And they'll be passed over from the spiritual death that comes from sin. Uh, Jesus said, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. This is the new memorial meal for those who are part of the family of God. The bread is to be eaten, but in remembrance of my body broken for you. And there is to be wine as a symbol of blood, but my blood shed on the cross. And the cup that set aside for the Messiah is now to be raised to our lips, for I have come. Jesus was informing them that now he was the true sacrificial lamb of the Passover, that his death would serve as the deliverance of God's people from their sins. Jesus was saying that God was calling his people out of a slavery that, uh, a deeper slavery than ever existed under the Egyptians, the very slavery of sin, into a new community in relationship with the living God. Uh, That the church is the new Israel in that sense. And through Jesus, the Passover had reached its ultimate fulfillment and celebration. Everything that started with Moses and the Exodus, everything that the Passover meal looked forward to had now been fulfilled. He was, bringing us all full full circle, he was the second Isaac, the ultimate sacrifice for the world that uh, the Father did not withhold, Uh, the ultimate sacrifice that was provided, a body and blood that was sacrificed for us, a perfect life that knew no sin, offered in place of our imperfect lives that was filled with sin. That's why we had the sacrificial system. That's why we don't have it now. That's how it all hangs together from Isaac to the Passover to Jesus to us. Hmm. Well, then we arrive to the conquest of the Promised Land, specifically the slaughtering of the Canaanites. Um, to passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, where God says about the Canaanites, you must completely destroy them, make no treaties with them, and show no mercy. Isn't this the same God who said, thou shalt not murder? How do we reconcile that? Okay, let's dive back into our seminary Bible classroom. Okay. <laughs> uh, here, here's, here's the backdrop. Uh, God had led the people of Israel out of slavery, as you mentioned, and out of Egypt. He was not only forming them into a new people, a new nation, but taking them to a new land, what became known as the promised land. But it wasn't just given to them. They had to take it, uh, possess it, and at times, as you mentioned, conquer it. And that's what brings us to one of the bloodiest scenes of the Bible. Uh, And it would have been, in this conversation, a huge omission not to talk about, which is the slaughter of the Canaanites by the Israelites on the directives of God himself. Now, Was that an indiscriminate massacre, an ethnic cleansing along the lines of Hitler and the Jewish people or Saddam Hussein's slaughter of the Kurds, something that deserves not only universal condemnation, but a complete rejection of the God of the Bible uh, to what uh, Richard Dawkins called God is a moral monster for this uh, particular scene? Or is there something more here? 
first, well, there's something more here. <laughs> Let's get into that. First, this was more than just an invasion. This was more than just a conquest. This was God's planned justice, his planned punishment of the people of Canaan for their ways, long in the making and in the coming. Yes, God was displacing them from the land to give it to the people of Israel, but that displacement came because of their ferocious, habitual, unrepentant wickedness. And I do mean wicked. They, they had given themselves over to that. The Canaanites were marked by the worst possible aspects, for example, of slavery. Not that there's anything good about slavery, but take slavery to the darkest place that you can take it, and they did. Uh, the worship of false gods, uh, religious prostitution, sexual cults. Uh, scholars have called the Canaanite cult uh, religion the most sexually depraved of any in the ancient world and perhaps the most depraved in all of ancient history. Uh, they had given themselves over to every kind of sexual depravity, including incest and bestiality. At their worst, their orgiastic worship of idols even included human sacrifice, including children being sacrificed. There's imagery of cult sexual practices of them bathing themselves in the blood of these sacrificed babies. The Bible says that God had been tolerating this for over 400 years. Their wickedness kept increasing and, and increasing, and God kept, you know, burying it and burying it. 400 years of, of, of patience and restraint. But the wickedness reached a point where Scripture talks about how God could not stomach it anymore, and he vomited them out of his mouth. But there's another point to make here, and it's about that phrase that you brought up, the directive to destroy every living thing in the cities. You read something like that, and you think that sounds like over the top and unnecessary even for divine judgment. Well, a couple things on that. If you read the text, this was for the cities. Again, not the outlying areas. In the culture of the ancient Near East, most people lived in the outlying areas. They didn't live in the cities. The cities were military fortifications. They were for soldiers. They were for military officers. It's not where the women and children, farmers and laborers were. So in terms of warfare, this was not about civilians. Second, in terms of the ancient language of the day, this was common hyperbole. Uh, it wasn't about literally taking every life, but ensuring that the job was done. Uh, the, the, the war was won, that the enemy was defeated, that the task was accomplished. It was like us talking about uh, how a sports team blew their opponent away, or they just got slaughtered, or we annihilated them. It's a form of rhetoric. Uh, when you study the language of the ancient Near Eastern cultures, this was very, very, very common. They would talk about, for example, they would talk about how they destroyed every man, and then later talk about what they were going to do with their male survivors. <laughs> so, um, in other words, destroying everything meant winning, mm. not literally destroying everything. Uh, this was more about uh, purifying than it was purging. So this was punishment ordained by God, military against military, which I think casts it in a very different light. Mm -hmm. I feel like you get this, I get this, but we also can't deny that you know killings like that of the Canaanites have served as like the justification for other types of holy war killing. You know, of course, the Crusades come to mind, but there, I mean, there are so many other examples of this throughout Christian history. And so I guess the question would be like, are holy wars still just? Can anything of that be repeated or should be prescriptive? Oh, let's talk about that. Okay. One of the clearest passages um, related to a Christian's commitment to peace and peacemaking comes from the teaching of Jesus as recorded in the fifth chapter of Matthew was part of his Sermon on the Mount, where he said, you know, you've heard 
as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't, you know, I'm telling you, don't resist an evil person. And someone strikes you in the right cheek, you know, turn the other. If they want your tunic, give them, you know, uh, your cloak as well. If they force you to walk one mile, walk two, that whole passage that is there. Um, there are many other verses and passages on peace and peacemaking. Um, but that contains the heart of the matter. You know, we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should not seek personal revenge on someone or be filled with hatred toward another person. Uh, we should even allow ourselves to be disadvantaged uh, rather than retaliate. Uh, so does that mean we should be pacifists, uh, that we shouldn't engage in war of any kind? Uh, or does it mean that you should love your neighbor, but that issues related to politics and war are a different matter? In other words, that Jesus was talking about personal relationships, but when it comes to corporate or national issues, it's another deal. Because when you study the life of Jesus, um, again, you, you can't cherry pick him. You, you, you notice that he never called a soldier. You had to read everything he said and did. Uh, you notice he never called a soldier. There's no record of him ever calling a soldier who came to him in faith out of his military duties. You don't find that anywhere in scripture. You don't find that anywhere in the early church records either where becoming a Christian meant that you suddenly had to leave the military. Uh, never once did Jesus say to a Roman uh, centurion, you need to leave the army if you're going to follow me. And in his own life, he was known to use force. He, when he, such as when he cleared the temple, that was the use of force. So what was meant by peace? Well, let's, let's track how this has played out in Christian history. Um, and this is an important bit of, of that's worth knowing. Um, we know that with Jesus' words still ringing in their ears, by the second century, many Christians were serving in the Roman army, some as high-ranking officers. When the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian, making Christianity an acceptable, even favored religion in the Roman Empire, even more Christians entered into public service. Suddenly, Christians found themselves in positions where they were responsible for the welfare of everyone in the Roman Empire. Then when barbarian tribes began to attack Roman citizens, Christians had to decide how best to respond, not only as Christians, but as Christians responsible for the welfare of non-Christians too. Into this stepped the early church father, Augustine, who lived between 354 and 430. And he was considered one of the greatest figures of all of Christian history and one of its keenest minds. And he was the first to provide clear biblical guidance for this, the early church I'm trying to figure out how this all played out. His ideas were refined over the centuries uh, through a litany of leading Christian thinkers, but Augustine's central ideas have stood the test of time and informed Christian thinking to this day. Uh, they become known as the just war theory. In essence, it takes the great commandment of Jesus in relation to peace, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, and applies it to the responsibilities of government and civics. And here's the, the heart of it. While owning the fact that Jesus taught that it would be wrong for an individual Christian to take aggressive action on their own, in other words, there's no private right to kill or take matters of justice into your own hands, it is the duty and responsibility of Christians who have public responsibility, such as magistrates, a soldier, police officer, a king, president, to use discriminate and proportionate force to defend and to protect their fellow human beings. What was happening, in essence, in the passage in Matthew, to go back to that, uh, was Jesus condemning the scribes and the Pharisees and others who had taken the legitimate role of retribution that was given to governing authorities, and they were claiming it for themselves on a personal level. 
They had taken it away from the law courts where it belonged into the personal realm where it did not. And Jesus says, no, there are to be no vendettas, nothing personal like that. So stop that. If you're going to play that game, turn the other cheek. That's the way you should be. So from this, Christians developed the just war theory, a just war idea to allow for the personal peace that Jesus admonished us to live by, as well as the civic responsibilities that we've been charged to keep. We're not to take the law into our own hands, but that does not mean the law cannot be taken up. In fact, the law must be established. Uh, to love our neighbor uh, personally and to love our neighbor corporately sometimes can involve the use of force, uh, police action, courts, uh, punishments, prisons, even war. The idea is that while the Bible teaches us to live in peace with others as much as it depends on you, someone could make it impossible for you to live at peace with them. Uh, from this, the conditions for a just war were spelled out. And let me give you the main ones. For a war to be just, there has to be an urgent and imminent threat. It must be an act of defense against aggression, never simply for conquest or as an act of aggression. Uh, only a defensive act is defensible. It must be ordered by one who is in authority to do it, to do so. They have been given the authority. It must be for a just cause. It must have the right intention. It should not be based on revenge. It must be an act of neighborly love and protection with peace as its goal. It should be the last resort. Peace and resolution should have been attempted. The force used must be proportionate to the desired ends, meaning that the evils caused by the war are less than the evils to be righted. It must seek to minimize non-combatant uh, civilian casualties. Now, when this is carried out, and along these lines, these principles followed by those in civic authority, it could be considered just, even if preemptive, uh, meaning striking first. For if the threat was urgent and imminent, then striking first to prevent that threat was considered an act, again, of neighborly love. To fail to engage in a just war is to refuse the love of God to another person. To fail to use force to aid our neighbor when force is the best way to render that aid is to withhold love. To fail to engage in a just war is to fail to love your neighbor as yourself. If there is genocide happening somewhere, neighborly love means ending that genocide and stepping in and by force if needed. So you have, for example, in the Old Testament, Joshua God told Joshua to go to war against the Midianites because they were being oppressive and committing all kinds of atrocities, including throwing young children into these huge burning fires. And as you read about this, and again, this is in Numbers uh, 22, and we can put that in your show notes if you forget that. Um, God gets more than a little upset. And part of his anger was that two of the tribes of Israel wouldn't go to war. They wouldn't step in, even when this was happening to children, that they wouldn't obey God to step in in what was very a very just use of force. And God's anger was not only against the Midianites, but against two of the tribes of Israel who refused to engage that battle. Hmm. I think when you get to, first of all, thank you. Again, That this has been really helpful. And I, I hope that we can link in the show notes the Bloody Bible series that you did too, because I think that you're able to tackle a lot more than we're going to be able to tackle in this conversation. And also Christianity for people who aren't Christians mm. tackles this from the van po van point, uh, vantage point of how non-Christians feel when they read this. And so I walk through it 
uh, trying to explain it as as if you were explaining it to a non-Christian about why these things are in the Bible. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, like, you know, when, by the time you get to the New Testament, you don't see quite as many bloody scenes like we just talked about. Um, and so that has led people to think of God in this dichotic sense in which he is mean and angry in the Old Testament, but then he's loving and merciful in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. In fact, there were several movements in the early church that they were eventually deemed heretical, but they couldn't make sense of these two faces of God. And so they concluded that they had to be two separate gods. In Gnosticism, Marcionism, they're both had this kind of frame of mind. So how might we reconcile our own hardships here with the theology that God is love and he does not change. Yeah. Well, first, let's talk about what a testament is. Okay. Let's ground ourselves in that before we get into the issues between the older one and the newer one. The word testament simply means agreement or covenant. It refers to a pact, a treaty, an alliance between two parties. And in many ways, the Bible is a record of God's great covenants or promises to us in regard to our relationship with him. So what is the old Testament or Older Testament. Well, it's a record of God's covenants, God's agreements with people before the time of Jesus. Specifically, the Old Testament is the covenant God made with men and women about how to be in a relationship with him before Christ came. God gave the people promises that if they would open themselves to God's actions and align themselves with God's purposes, that they could be in a relationship with God. And then through that, God would reach out to the world. Through them, he would reach out to the world. As time went on, his covenants gave more and more of God's plan, more and more of his revelation, building toward the supreme revelation of God's plan, which the Old Testament said would be the coming of the Messiah, God himself to save the world. Which brings us to the Newer Testament, the New Testament. The New Testament is the new agreement that God made with men and women about how to be in a relationship with God after the coming of Jesus. But it didn't replace the Old Covenant, it fulfilled it. That's incredibly important to understand. The better way to think of them is the first covenant and then the final or fulfilled covenant. Because God's agreements with people in the nation of Israel found their fulfillment in the new covenant in Jesus. Because that's what they were to begin with. Pointers, signs of what was to come. All along, God's intention was to bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The Old Testament describes everything about how God set the stage for what would be the ultimate moment in all of human history. In fact, the purpose of the Old Covenant was to prepare people for the coming complete covenant that would arrive with the Messiah. All of the prophets of the Old Testament passionately awaited the completion, the fulfillment of God's plan through the coming of Jesus. Everything that they said, everything that they did was pointing toward waiting in expectation. And what they were looking for is what the New Testament chronicles. Uh, the New Testament describes the coming of Jesus and how it brought to fruition all of God's dealings with human beings. But that brings us to the problem that a lot of people uh, feel comes into play. If all of this is true, then why does it seem uh, like when you read the Old Testament, you get a, a God of wrath and judgment. In the New Testament, you get a God of love. Uh, I mean, you know, they'll say, you know, that's just the way it reads. You know, is it, doesn't it? And I would say, no. That's not the way it reads at all. Uh, when you actually read both Testaments, you find that there really isn't a difference between how the Old Testament and the New Testament portray and present God at all. In Jesus, you see the character of God the Father, the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus is no more loving than his Father, and the Father is no more judging than Jesus. There's enormous love and grace and mercy in the Old Testament pictures of God, almost to the point of scandal. I mean, in spite of people's sin, uh, in spite of people's rebellion, 
God continues on with this stubborn love and this unrelenting bias toward mercy. I mean, just read Hosea. Oh, my goodness. Um, God reveals his own heart and says that the response to sin and disobedience and rejection is to go and show love to that person again and again and again. And if people aren't familiar with Hosea, um, it, it, it was the story that was made into a movie. Francine Rivers wrote about redeeming love and about a man who fell in love with a prostitute. And she kept being unfaithful and he kept having God tell him to, you know, you stay faithful to her. You keep going after her and you get, you keep bringing her home and you keep having her as your wife, even though she kept this, you know, kept leaving you this way. And of course, in Hosea, that whole story is told with God saying, I, that's me. And the people who, uh, you know, I mean, you, the people have been the prostitute and I'm, I'm the, I'm the, the loving husband who's just wanting to go chase after her again and again and again. That's in, that's in the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament story, which is what you see God doing again and again for us. So the Old Testament is not dominated by God's wrath. It's dominated by God's incredible restraint, uh, his unbelievable patience and his undying love. You see, the truth is that this God of the Bible is a God of love and justice, grace and judgment, mercy and accountability. And together they form a single picture a single unity. And it is a uh, compelling one. Mm. One I might add too, you know, it's not that the New Testament is any less bloody than the Old Testament. It's just that the blood is now Jesus's and it's not ours. You still have the same loving and just God, but it's his blood that he sheds. Um, but it doesn't mean it's any less costly, right? It, it means that it's tremendously costly. So we just seem to take that for granted and we miss that fact sometimes. Yeah. Well, gosh, this has been so helpful. And I know so many people who are listening probably have people in mind who they're thinking, man, it would be so great for such and such to be able to hear this. And so I hope that you'll share it or I hope, gosh, even better that you would be able to um, digest this information in such a way that you could repeat it or share it you know, and help others understand if this is a hang up for them. But we'll fill the sh we'll, we will fill the show notes with more resources to help you with that. But I know this feels like a breath of fresh air for some of us who have just struggled with this for a long time. So thank you, Jim, for your time. Thank you guys for the time that you spent listening to this. And we hope you'll consider joining us again next week. See you later.